thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for letting me come back. I'm a little disappointed that there's not a parking space out there with my name on it. <laughs> uh, that's a joke. If you've been here, like, I, I, sometimes I get invited once a year or so to Bethany to come, and uh, this is my third time. Um, and I keep telling you, I've only got five sermons. So, I, you know, you've you got to quit inviting me. I have to write something new when I, do, when I get invited. Um, Thank you for your prayers for us. I mentioned last time we were starting to bring, we, we have a DC-8, which is specifically designed to fly our field hospital to disasters. So we've had three field hospitals over in Ukraine. One is fully surgical, the other two are more like field hospitals that you see in different shows. But uh, on the way back, it starts bringing back Ukrainians. So we had our 268th Ukrainian uh, family come yesterday. And one even came, yeah, praise the Lord. That, they, they come into Toronto, by the way. We're not allowed to bring them into Calgary yet. Uh, we bring them into Toronto, but we actually had one family fly out and arrive at 1.27 a.m. Saturday morning uh, out to Calgary. And can I just say, if you're interested in, in potentially helping, would you, would you see Steve or Paul uh, or even come up and talk to me afterwards? Uh, we're not allowed to land our DC-8 in Calgary yet. We hope to, uh, but we're allowed to land it in Toronto and then they get filtered out to the west. So if you're interested in potentially helping uh, a Ukrainian family while they get settled here, uh, please let your pastors know and they can let me know or come up and talk to me afterwards. I'd love that. I saw an interesting statistic this last week and I gotta share it with you because you're in Operation Christmas Child Shoebox Church. Uh, every 24 hours, 24,995 children hear the gospel through Operation Christmas Child. Every 24 hours. Yeah. 11,000 of those children enroll in our children's discipleship program, which is called The Greatest Journey. Of the 11,000 enroll, 8,100 graduate. Every 24 hours, 8,100 kids graduate from that program. And 6,400, just over 6,400 kids pray to receive Christ every 24 hours. So we give glory to God. Thank you for what you do in that program, the way that you enable us to be able to take the gospel out, to remind kids that they haven't been forgotten, for the opportunity that you give people like me who are grandparents to take my grandkids as I took my kids shoebox shopping which is always fun because I found that my grandkids have very expensive tastes. <laughs> so I always enjoy that. But you know, one thing about that, and I, I just want to say this about that. In Matthew 24, where it talks about the end times, and I said last time I was here, you know, rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines in various places, it says the love of most will grow cold. I think we have an obligation as parents and grandparents, as leaders in Canada of any form, any shape, students, that we don't let the love of most grow cold. And I see Operation Christmas Child as a very tangible thing that I can do and take my kids out and teach them about compassion 
teach my grandchildren to be compassionate. Um, the other part in Matthew 24 when it says, you know, there will be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines in various places, it reminds us, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached. Don't wring your hands, don't sigh and don't gasp when you see all these things happening around the world and start to worry. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony to the whole world and then the end will come. As things get worse, there are greater and greater opportunities for us to talk about the love of Jesus Christ. And not just talk about it, but to demonstrate it, both here in Calgary and wherever we might go in the world. So I take heart in that. Um, There's just a couple verses. We're going to pull them up on the screen here. I titled this, Your Faith Has Not Failed. And it's in Luke chapter 22. And it's a very, it's just a couple of verses. Now, Luke chapter 22 has got to be one of the most action-packed chapters in the Gospels. I'm sure there's other ones, but this, this starts off with Judas agreeing to betray Jesus Christ. Then they go and Jesus sends his disciples to prepare the Passover meal. And in that meal, we have that wonderful institution of what we call the Lord's Supper when we come together. Can I, can I just say this? And you take it for what it's worth. But I like to see churches celebrate communion, whatever their tradition is. But I found more and more often nowadays that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together and remind ourselves of what he has done for us on the cross and by his resurrection, writing our names in the Lamb's Book of Life when we come to belief in him, you know, when we have that ceremony of communion, the Lord's Supper, we often rush it on the front end or the back end of a very busy service. Jesus took the time with his disciples to talk about the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. It's one of my pet peeves. I don't want us to be rushed as a people when we celebrate the Lord's Supper because it's a very profound time and we need to remember that. So he introduces the communion service, and then he mentions, yeah, one of you is going to betray me. And what do they do? Like that good group of 12, they start arguing. Oh, who's it going to be? Surely not me. It's got to be Matthew. You know, they start arguing about it, and Jesus settles them down. And then they start arguing a second time about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Can you imagine this? (laughs) You know, they just have that beautiful communion service and right away, and there's an interesting verse, by the way, in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's in chapter 11, when it talks about the Lord's Supper, and then right in the middle of that it says, for there have to be differences amongst you, so those upon whom God's favor rests will become evident. Isn't that interesting that it throws that in there? They start arguing, who's going to be the greatest in God's kingdom? Jesus quickly rescues the conversation and talks about being a servant. And just as he does that, he then turns to Simon. And I'm going to read the verses up there. It says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you, men, like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Let me go through this just to... Try and go through it a little bit quickly. Simon, Simon. Hey, just remember, he was part of that argument. 
And when you see Jesus say Simon, Simon twice, it's meant in the Greek that it comes with such great affection. It's like Moses in Exodus chapter three. Moses, Moses, the ground you're standing upon is holy ground. Martha, when he, I think it's Luke chapter 20, when and Jesus turns to Martha and you know, Mary's sitting there enjoying things at his feet. Martha's busy in the kitchen. I would have been like Martha, by the way, a little resentful. You know, I, I grew up, I was the youngest of five boys. Do you know what I got to do every week? The laundry. By the way, I am the world's best ironer. I, I kid you not. If you want a competition, I don't care, you know, guy, gal, I'll beat you. I've been ironing since I was eight years old. I can do laundry at the best of them. And I, I just say, you know, Martha, Martha, Jesus looks there and says, Mary's chosen the better thing here. When Jesus says, Simon, Simon, by the way, didn't call him Peter, called him Simon, went back to his original name. Can I say this about that? When you see that in scripture, this is one of the disciples that just was part of that argument about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to betray Jesus, those two arguments. Simon, and you know his personality, I bet he was rightfully engaged in that conversation. And Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, Simon. Hmm. Here's the point I want to make about that. This morning, you might feel that <laughs> you've done some things wrong, and I'm going to be saying this a couple times this morning. Jesus would look at me and say, Sean, wake up. Do you know what he'd say? Sean, Sean. With affection and compassion, even though I might have been part of that argument. And I don't want you to forget that this morning. Gentle are the ways of Jesus. You feel like he confronts you, he's in your face. That's what we probably think we deserve, right? But Jesus says, Simon, Simon. Here's what Satan's asked. Think about that. We don't deserve the goodness and the kindness of Jesus, I'm sure. But I'm sure grateful that we receive it. He says, Satan has asked. One of the versions says, he's demanded to have you all. Plural. Do you see it? Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan has demanded to sift you men. Plural. He's talking about all the disciples, the apostles that were there, the 12 that were seated around the table. Jesus is saying, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you, to each one of you, like wheat. He wants to tear you apart. You know, have you ever heard the song by Tommy Walker? Some of you musicians probably know it. He knows my name. What a great song. He knows my name. Can I tell you, if you are trying to please Jesus Christ this morning, Satan knows your name. That's not great news. He knows who you are. And he is demanding of Jesus, of God, of the Holy Spirit, that he might sift you like wheat. That, that word in the Greek, when it says sift, it means to shred you. When you put wheat through a, a sifter, it separated the head from the stalk. That's what Satan wants to do to you today. He accuses for sure, but he also wants to shred you. You know that song we sang, Lord, you've been so, so good. 
I think I've thought of that song every day since my wife passed away. And I have found, hear me, if you have a wound in your life, the first thing that Satan, the accuser, the sifter will do is he'll insert into that wound a lie. Let me share personally what that was. You could have done more, Sean. You should have taken her to Mayo Clinic. You should have done this. You should have gone down to Phoenix. You should have gone to the cancer centers in Houston, which are so remarkable. You should have done more. My wound was there, and what does Satan do? He puts a lie into it, and he'll do the same for you. If you're wounded this morning, look for the lie, because that's what Satan does to us, and if we don't address that lie, my friends, it can kill us. It can rip us apart, because we'll forever be living in the the agony and the shame thinking, oh, I should have done more. I, I, I really believe this. Your, your marriage has failed and you look and say, I am useless. Satan's got to lie into the wound in your life and he convinces you that you're no good. That's the kind of thing that Satan does. Yes, he runs around like a roaring lion. Yeah, he does that. But he also wants to shred you. Now, why does he do all this? And why does, more importantly, God allow it? Now hear me if you hear anything about this this morning. Let me tell you why. Go back to a couple Old Testament characters. Gideon, Jeroboam. Go back and you can read about it in Judges. Judges chapter 6 and 7. It says Midian so oppressed Israel. So oppressed Israel that they cried out to God. Oh, there's a clue right there. When you're going through times of shredding in your life and you feel that God is so distant and you say, God, God, like David did in Psalm 22, which I'm going to talk about in just a minute, he says, God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned back? Every night, tears are part of my pillow, he says in another song. I cry out to you and I can't find you. Where are you, God? Midian so oppressed Israel that they cried out to God. There's a clue right there. These things happen in our lives so that what, we, what might happen, you and I might come to learn to fully trust in God. He says to Gideon, and Gideon, by the way, is from a half-tribe of Manasseh. His clan is the weakest in all of Israel, and he's from the tiniest family, the weakest family in that clan, in that half-tribe. And God says, Gideon, man of God, man of strength, you're going to take on the Midianites. Gideon goes, you got, got the wrong person here. Get Steve Martin. He's smart and he's better than me. I can't do it. Have you ever felt that when God's put his finger upon you and says, I want you to do this? And you say, you got the wrong person. Surely there's someone more skilled who's great, of greater faith than me. God, call them. God says, I want you, Gideon. What does Gideon do? He lays out that fleece. Do you remember that? By the way, when you lay out a fleece, know this, a fleece isn't to discover what God's will is. It's all just to confirm what God's will has already been given to you. You don't lay out a fleece to say, okay, God, what do you want me to do here? Gideon knew what God wanted him to do. He laid out the fleece to confirm God's will, to assure him that he was on the right track. Okay, it's got to be dry. It was wet. It was dry. Wet. It's dry. It, he laid it out, and God revealed, said, I, you're... I'm still here. So then he goes to his 32,000 troops. Not bad. But then, fortunately, the Midianites have 135,000. 
And God says, Gideon, you got too many. Now listen, if you have 32,000, you know, when I was in North Korea a couple times, I would watch, watch the propaganda on the North Korea. There's only two channels. It's kind of like CBC back in the old days. You know, there's only two channels. One is pure propaganda and the other one's pure propaganda. And, and that's, that's all they are. And the North Koreans bragging about their military. Listen, I was, in, I was in northern Kuwait, southern Iraq during the Gulf War. And I watched these Republican Guard soldiers come out of their bunkers. They had soiled themselves. They were so frightened. Do you remember how they're boasting Saddam and said, my Republican Guard will stand up. Do you know what it's like? Have you ever been on the receiving end of a B-52 bombing you? So maybe you've got 32,000. Maybe you're better equipped. Maybe you're better trained. You know, we'll, we'll lure those 135,000 Midianites into a trap. We'll drop rocks on their head. We'll win. God says, you've got too many. Gideon pulls out his calculator and goes, I think they got too many. God says, no, you got too many. I want you to go to them and say, anybody frightened, go home. There were 12,000 first-round draft picks. I would have been there. Yeah, <laughs> I know the numbers. I'm going home. Now he's got 10,000. What does God say? You still got too many. So what does he do? He says, okay, go down to the water and watch the way the men drink. Okay, now have you ever been in a crystal clear pool of water? Now you're a soldier. You don't wash very often. How are you going to drink? With that dirty, filthy hand that who knows where it's been, are you going to lap the water to your mouth? Or are you going to be the smart one and just stick your whole face in there and get a drink? There were 300 dummies that lapped the water to them. God says, these are the ones. Gideon goes, did I do that fleece right? Was it supposed to be dry with what? You know, I'm sure he's, he, he's in despair. He goes to bed that night. God wakes him up, says, grab your servant Purah, go to the Midianite camp and listen. He hikes into the Midian camp. There's the Midian, all the tents. Now, I don't think that was probably be a good idea to do it. But they went and they listened outside. One, two of the Midianite soldiers, one woke up and says, oh, I just had an awful dream. His friend said, tell me about it. A round loaf of barley bread rolled down the hill and destroyed the camp. That's the sword of Gideon. Who's on the other side of the tent listening? Gideon. And Gideon gets that little bit of encouragement just when he needs it. If you're here this morning and you feel like you're being shred, you feel like you're being sifted, it is not wrong for you to cry out to God and say, God, I need a little bit of encouragement from you. Please, God, give me what I need today. Just remind me that you are still present. Remind me that you're still in control. You might get a letter, a surprise in the mail. Uh, we don't get letters anymore. A text message, an email. You might hear something in church. One of the Christian brothers or sister in the church might call you up and just say, hey, I was just praying for you. And you go, aha, Lord. I was at a missions conference once and I stood up and, you know, I was missionary at that time. I says, I want to share with you one of my favorite verses, Psalm 34, 8. It says, taste and see if the Lord is good. We all know that verse. One of these wizened old missionaries who's been there like for 210 years in the back, he goes, that's not what it says. I go, yeah, that's one of my favorite verses. I'm pretty sure that's what it says, Wayne. He says, no, it doesn't say taste and see if the Lord is good. Already some of you are playing it in your minds. It does not say taste and see if the Lord is good. It says taste and see that the Lord is good. There is a big difference between if and that. 
and you might be going through a difficult time. Gideon gets that little bit of encouragement. God wants to give you that little bit of encouragement, maybe that you need this morning, to say, God, I'm at wit's end. Why are you allowing Satan to sift me? Because that's what Satan does. But he can only do it if God approves it. Because God wants you to know of his amazing ability to sustain you in the midst of that. Everything might fail you. Your job, your health, your spouse, your family, God forbid your church, but God will not fail you. Jehoshaphat, Second Chronicles chapter 20, he's told the great three armies are coming against us, powerful armies. He calls all the people together, what's the first thing they do? Man, if I knew three powerful armies were coming against me, I'd probably start sharpening the swords, roweling the troops, getting them ready, planning strategies. This is the first thing they did is they all fasted and prayed. What a response. I dare say that's not my first response when I realize there's great armies coming against me. And there's this beautiful prayer where Jehoshaphat and all the people, young and old, prophets, workers, soldiers, musicians, they all come together. They're falling on their face before the Lord, and Jehoshaphat prays this great prayer. Lord, we have no strength to face them. You judge them, Lord. We have no strength. How can we take on these three vast armies coming against us? Nevertheless, Lord, our eyes are upon you. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Whatever you're facing this morning, I just say, do you need encouragement from God? He wants to bring that. He wants to give that to you. Do you need God to intervene, to step into your life? Keep your eyes upon him. You know, you and I become like our emotional focus, right? Whatever we focus in on emotionally, whatever's around us, that's causing such turmoil and pain, if we focus it on that, we become just like that. But we choose not to as followers of Jesus Christ. We place our eyes upon the Lord. Do you know know what scares me about accomplished men and women? Every one of us is gonna go through these times. I promise you, if you're here this morning, you're gonna go through a time where you feel like you're being shredded, where you wonder, God, I cry out to you, And I'm about to give up because I cry out and I can't find you. You're on the right track. He's there. He's wanting to encourage your hearts. But you know what scares me about accomplished men and women? They actually think they can do it. The more accomplished they are in the world's eyes, the greater the shredding process. Ah, that's not good news. I remember some, uh, we were in a meeting with Dr. Graham. Around the table, we probably had 20 vice presidents of Samaritan's Purse and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. We're talking about doing My Hope, which is a big project we've done. We had the chairman of Coca-Cola, the chairman of General Electric there. They're on our boards of directors. One of the top guys who has 200 Panera Breads sitting at the table with us as vice presidents. We're talking about how we're gonna do My Hope. Dr. Graham would once in a while attend the vice president meetings and he'd always sit at the head of the table and you know, this is when he's about 90 
and his head would be bowed. And, you know, we didn't know if he's praying or sleeping or just not interested, whatever it was. If he's got his little Walkman and he's playing games, so he just had his head bowed the whole time. And we're talking about how we're going to do this project, and all of a sudden, Dr. Graham slams his hand upon the table. Well, when Dr. Graham does that, everybody is quiet. He said, you all scare me. Finally, one of the presidents of these companies said, Dr. Graham, how is it that we scare you? He says, because you actually think you can do this. 20, 25 men and women, we dropped on our knees and repented. <laughs> Listen, you, you, you can't live the Christian life. You, you can't. That's why you have the Holy Spirit of God given to you. Because he is the one that enables you and empowers you to live the Christian life. And when you go through these times of shredding, these dark, dark times, and you wonder, God, what's it all about? Where are you? God says, I'm here. I'm just waiting for you. Give up on those things. Why is it that Jesus could look over Jerusalem and say, you know, Jerusalem, and weep over them and said, if you only knew what I can do for you, how could Jesus say, unless you hate your mother, father, brother, or sister, you're not worthy to be my disciple? Did he mean that, that I need to hate them? No. What he meant was, if you only knew what I could do for you, what I want to do for you, your love for those other things would seem like hatred. So good am I. Is he cruel? You know, it says in 1 Peter 3, uh, chapter 4 says, hey, don't be surprised when trials of various things come your way, but rejoice. And if you're going through some of these rough times this morning, maybe this is the little bit of encouragement that you need. I want to tell you, God is still here. He's still wanting to do things for you. He still wants to bless you. He still wants to minister to you. You're going through it so that God can draw you to trust more in him. And he's so much better than trusting in anything else. I, I, I might have shared this with you. I, I like scuba diving. I, because of my travels, I've got to dive and snorkel in a lot of countries. One time I was in the Great Barrier Reef with the chairman of our board who has a big sailboat. And uh, we were up there and he said, you know, the, the Great Barrier Reef is dying, Sean. I said, really? He said, yeah. And we all know that, we probably heard global warming, whatever it is that's causing this, but the, the coral reefs are dying. He says, but there's a couple areas in Australia where the reefs are thriving. I said, well, what's the difference? He said, where the water's calm and warm, the coral's dying. But where the waves are crashing against it, they're thriving. I said, I'm going to use that in a sermon illustration one day. There it is. When everything's calm about you, when everything's going, I wish I was closest to God when times are going well. Bring them on, Lord. Bless me. I could use a new Porsche. Replace my five-year-old Kia. Listen, I, I'm not. Do you know what I'm closest to God? When times are tough. when I've got no one else that I really feel I can trust in but God. And God has to do that good and beautiful work in my heart to remind me that he's still in control, 
He still got it. You know, when David talks in Psalm 22, and I just want to read, I, I referred to it earlier. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. He starts off by saying, my God, my God. Hey, twice. Simon, Simon. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh, my God. I cry out by day, but you do not answer me. By night, and I'm not silent. And do you know what David does through this whole psalm? Will you please read it this afternoon? He starts off by saying that, and by the end of the song, psalm, he's back to praising God. Self-talk is important. And sometimes you just have to claim a few things by faith. And what does David do? Here's a couple of them. He says, and I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. Listen, I will declare your name to my brothers. This great senior missionary gal in Jordan who's been there 75 years, who's been honored by the royal family of Jordan, who are direct descendants of the prophet Muhammad. She started one of the largest TB hospitals in the Middle East. Aileen Coleman. Aileen always reminds me, she says, you know what you do? You let your requests be known to God and you let your resources be known to man and don't mix it up. Oh, I'm pretty quick to go to people I think, no, I'm not. I don't do that anymore. But I will declare to you how good my God is. In my days... He took my wife away and took her home. His grace was sufficient. And I declared. And who do you declare it to? Your brothers and sisters. I want you to see one thing about my life when I'm talking. How glorified Jesus should be in my life. How beautiful he is. And how much he has sustained me. I'll take my request to him. But he and you will know of my resources. Because God is good. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you here. And you say, well, what if it's not happening? What if I don't really don't feel like that? That's a lie then if I talk about how much I love God and I don't really feel he's around. Listen, this is self-talk. If you do this, you start to, when you start to articulate that, soon enough it sinks down into your heart and you start to believe it. But you need to remind yourself of these things. He says, you who fear the Lord, praise him. Oh, there it is. This is what, you know, sometimes you say, I don't want to praise God. I don't feel like praising God. Things aren't going well. When things are well, I'll praise him. But right now, life sucks. I say, this is when you need to praise the Lord. This is how David gets himself out of the funk that he is in. And when you go through these tough, tough times, tell your brothers and sisters how beautiful the Lord is. Share your resources, but be quick to go to him and let him know of your requests and then praise him. In your tears, where you don't feel like it, you begin to praise him. You'll work your way out of it. Uh, what does Jesus say, Simon? But I've prayed for you. Now it's singular. Jesus says, I have prayed for you. What's it say up there? But I have prayed for you. And another version says, I have pled for you. Do you know what I like when people come up and tell me, hey, I'm going to be praying for you. Thank you. 
You know what I like, like even better? When people come and say, I have been praying for you. Past tense. Jesus says, Simon, I have prayed for you. The force in the Greek is, I have pled with God the Father on your behalf that your faith would not fail. Do you plead with Jesus? Do you plead with God? That's intense. I dare say in my life there's only been a few times where I've pled with God. And yet that's what God wants you to do. He wants you to be that nagging, persistent friend at midnight. He wants you to be that nagging widow who comes before the judge to present your case. He wants to see the sincerity of your heart. Do you beg of God? It's okay. It's intense prayer. That's what God expects. And can I say this? Jesus says, Simon, I have prayed for you. Catch this. He's praying for you. I love my Filipino friends. They sure love it when they can get the senior pastor to pray for them. How powerful that is. My Korean friends who so revere the senior pastor, if they can just get two minutes with the senior pastor who will lay his hands upon them and pray for them, how blessed they feel. You've got Jesus Christ in heaven pleading for you this morning. What does he say to Simon? Simon, I'm praying that your faith would not fail. You say, hey, wait a second. His faith did fail. He denied Jesus three times. Mm -mm -mm -mm. His faith didn't fail. He sinned. Some of you have sinned this morning. You are sinning this morning. Doesn't mean your faith has failed. It just means you have sinned. You could say, well, no, no, I, I, I disagree with you. Simon's faith failed. Oh, then God the Father didn't hear his son's prayer? Of course he did, and he answered it. Did Simon deny Jesus Christ? Yes, he sinned. He sinned against Jesus. He sinned against God by denying him. But did his faith fail? No, it didn't. Don't confuse those two, because that is another trap of Satan where he gets you and you think, man, I have so blown it, there is no way back to God. If you only knew how bad I am, how addicted I am to certain things, and how much I've lied about these things in my life, ah, I failed God. Mm -mm -mm. You've sinned. You've sinned. But it doesn't mean your faith has failed. What's the formula to return? There it is right there. I prayed that your faith would not fail. And you, when you've turned back, another version says, when you have repented, turn back and repented. There, listen, repent. If you're in sin this morning, first things first, repent. Say to God, I grief you, Lord. What I've been doing is sin. But I'm just so trapped into it, I don't have the power to overcome. You're not supposed to have the power. If you could have the power to stop sinning in your life, habitual sin, do you think that God would have sent Jesus 
No, he's saying, Jesus, because you and I don't have the power to overcome certain things in our lives. So the first thing you do is you repent. And then you turn back. You can't repent. By the way, don't try and repent without turning back. Because it just gets worse. So you start by repenting, which isn't a real popular word, which I don't know, I hope you hear about it in your church. I know there are a lot of churches that don't hear about it anymore because we don't want to offend anybody, but the Bible tells me to repent. Simon, when you repent, turn back. And it says strengthen your brothers. I gotta tell you, there's probably nobody better to strengthen the brothers and sisters in the congregation than somebody who's sinned and repented and turned back to Jesus because they know what it's like. Oh, I had an ugly marriage. It fell apart. We were divorced. I just feel so, I feel like I failed. Well, you, you, you might have sinned, you might, yeah, but has your faith failed? You might have failed your partner. They might have failed you, but it doesn't mean that your faith has failed. But there's probably nobody better to counsel someone else going through those agonizing steps, those painful processes, than someone who's already gone through it and come back to Jesus Christ. You know who are the best addiction counselors? Former addicts. Because they know what it's like and they can strengthen their brothers. I should probably end there. I've gone on too long. Listen, I don't know where you're at this morning. If you feel like you're being shredded, if you feel like you're being torn apart. But I want you to be encouraged that these things that are happening in your life are for a purpose. And that purpose is so that you might experience the deep, deep grace of God. His love his loving kindness and his faithfulness. You might feel this morning like, God, I, I really need a touch from your hand because I'm so there. I need that little bit of encouragement, Father, bring it to me so that I might continue in this process. I don't know, these waves are cascading around me. I just feel like every time I get my head to the surface to take a breath, someone takes it and pushes it back underwater. I want to say that God wants to change that in your life. He wants to minister to you. And then if you've sinned, if you're caught in sin, whatever it might be, the Lord would look at you and he'd say, your name, twice, with great affection. He's praying for you. He pleads with the Father on your behalf. Your faith has not failed. You might have sinned. Repent. Agree with God what sin is and turn back to him. And then he'll use you to strengthen your brothers and your sisters. The worship band's gonna come and sing and I just wanna lead you in prayer, so let's pray together. Father, minister to our hearts.
All our lives you've been faithful. You're so, so good to us. So descend upon us by the power of your spirit. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning, especially for those that are trapped, Lord. Set them free. Bring to them repentance. The minute they turn their face back toward you, draw them so close to your tender bosom, Lord. Pull them into your embrace. Remind them that you forgive them. That there's a great work yet still to be done in their hearts and lives. Father, thank you for your great love. Thank you for your faithfulness. Do these things, we pray, for the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.